week we're going to continue our series uh, entitled, A Long Story Short. And so what we're doing is we're going through the Old Testament and we're looking at these stories and we're just walking through them. And this morning we're going to be looking at the story of Moses. And so before I begin, I'd just like to uh, pray. Father God, we come before you now, Lord, and we just ask that you'll be with us. Lord, we just ask that, uh, Lord, just that our hearts will be open to hear your word. Lord, that you will speak to us. Lord, that all these uh, distracting thoughts will be cleared out. Lord, that we might give you your, our attention, Lord, that we might hear your word. Lord, touch our hearts and our souls this morning, we pray. Amen. So, like I said, this morning we're going to be looking at the story of Moses. There's a guy named F.B. Huey Jr., and he says this about uh, Moses. He says, he is one of the great figures in all of history. A man who took a group of slaves in inconceivably difficult circumstances, molded them into a nation that has influenced and altered the entire course of history. Focusing this one person are the figures of prophet, priest, lawgiver, judge, intercessor, shepherd, miracle worker, and founder of a nation. There are over 800 times that Moses is mentioned specifically throughout Scripture. Over 800 times. He's mentioned 79 times in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament figure at all. So the question becomes, how do we talk about someone who is talked about 800 times in the Bible in one sermon and not get bogged down? And so the answer is just to look at a few specific things, just a few things as we walk through the story of Moses that we can learn from Moses about God and about him being this picture of Christ and what we can learn about ourselves uh, through this as well in him. Moses is well known for his leading the people out of Egypt. We have the story of the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. Although that's one of the biggest stories, we're not going to look at it this morning. And the reason why is that we're going to look at it next week in great detail. We're going to look at that story along with the, the Mosaic Covenant next week. And Mike uh, Lilly is going to teach on, teach on that one. So we're just going to look at the other stuff and just kind of briefly mention it. But next week it's in detail. So if you think of like Moses' timeline as this big spectrum going across the stage, this is what we're going to look at today. And Mike Lilly next week is going to take his magnifying glass out and just look at that Exodus piece and just walk us through that. So, to tell the story of Moses, we need to look at what came before Moses. Last week, looked at, last week we looked at Abraham. And God tells Abraham to leave his homeland, to travel to a new country. And he says this, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God goes on later on and tells him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But I'm not going to do it right away. <laughs> You're going to be 400 years in slavery before I do this. Now, Abraham doesn't go into slavery. He stays where he is. But his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren do. There's 70 people in all that go into live in Egypt because of this great big famine, they're forced to leave. When they get to Egypt, they're welcomed as guests. But as time goes on, they become slaves. And it is into this slavery in Egypt 
that Moses is born. Now, Pharaoh is the leader of, of Egypt, and he's worried about how many of these slaves that there are, because there's 70 people that went in there, but 400 years later, there's about 2 million people. There's over 600,000 men, and on top of that were the women and all the children. So there's about 200 million people, or 2 million people there. And Pharaoh becomes afraid. He's worried now that if a war comes out, if someone attacks Egypt, that these slaves will revolt, and they'll go onto the side of the enemy, and they will be defeated. So Pharaoh comes up with this plan, and he's going to control the population. What he's going to do is he's going to kill every newborn boy. He's going to have them thrown into the river. It's into this that Moses is born. Moses has an older sister named Miriam and an older brother named Aaron. Moses' mother gives birth to Moses. And she puts him in this basket. This, she waterproofs a basket. Instead of just throwing him into the river, she puts him in this basket. And he floats down the river. Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the river, and she sees this basket that's out in the reeds. And so she tells her servants, she's like, go and get me the basket. So the servants get the basket. They bring it there. She finds the baby in it, and she decides that she wants to raise the child as her own. Miriam has been tracking the basket the whole time. And quick thinking, Miriam runs up when she sees what's happening. She says, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child? And so Pharaoh's daughter says, this is a great idea. Not only can you get me one, but I'll pay her to do it. <laughs> so Miriam goes and gets mom. And so Moses' mom not only keeps Moses from dying, but she's paid to keep him alive. And so she has Moses until this time that he's old enough to be brought back to Pharaoh's daughter so that she might raise him as her son. Do you see God's providence in this? Isn't that an amazing story of God's providence and God orchestrating every single thing to work the way, it's, the way it's supposed to? And as we look at the birth of Moses, we can compare it to the birth of Jesus Christ. Because Moses is figuratively born into this basket. And Pharaoh tries to kill him by killing all the baby boys. And we see Jesus who was born in this manger. And we have Herod trying to kill him by killing all of the baby boys boys. So, as the story of Moses marches on, we're going to look at these different pieces. And the first piece I want to look at is Moses' sense of justice and his compassion. Moses has this sense of justice, and he has this compassion for those who are weak and who are downtrodden. downtrodden. And we get this glimpse of his life early on, because this happens when he's still in Egypt. Moses is now growing up. He goes out and he looks at the people. And he sees this struggle. He sees this burden that they're under. He sees this, this hostile, hostility that they're working under. And as he's watching all his people, he sees this Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. So Moses looks right. No one's there. Moses looks left. And no one's there. And so he kills the Egyptian. And he hides his body in the sand. The next day, he sees two Hebrew people fighting amongst themselves. And he walks up and he says, he sees the one that's in the wrong. And he walks up to him and he's like, why on earth are you hitting your own companion? And this guy goes back and he says, who made you prince and judge over us? He says, you're going to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? So what Moses thought he had hidden is now disclosed. 
And so Moses is afraid. And for good reason, too, because Pharaoh finds out about it, and he puts this mark on his head, and he tries to find Moses in order to kill him. So Moses leaves Egypt, and Moses goes to the land of Midian. And when he gets there, he sits down at this well. And seven sisters come to draw water for their animals. When they're there, these shepherds come, and the shepherds kick him out, and they drive him away. Moses doesn't know anyone. doesn't know the seven sisters, doesn't know the shepherds, but he sees this injustice. He sees these people who are going against the weak. And not knowing anyone, he stands up for them. And he saves the sisters from these shepherds, and he waters the flock. And so we see this desire for justice. And we see this compassion. And this is one of the things that we can learn from Moses. Justice and compassion always need to go together. See, his anger was fueled by compassion. His anger wasn't fueled because they did something wrong to him, and now he's hurt somehow or another. But he sees this evil people oppressing the weak ones. And this is that righteous anger that we see that God has. Because God hates evil, God hates wickedness, and God has this righteous anger. But we can also see that this is a perfect case where the Apostle Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Because in the case of the Egyptian, right, Moses takes justice into his own hands and he tries to save the man by killing the Egyptian. But in the case of the seven sisters, he uses far much less force, right? He stands up, he does what's right, he saves the sisters and he helps them water their their uh, flocks. In the same way, Moses is like Jesus. Because Moses has this sense of justice that's combined with this com- or is combined with the compassion for the weak. And so he delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. And Jesus has this sense of compassion that's combined with or the sense of justice combined with compassion for the weak, and he saves us. And he delivers us out of the hand of the enemy. So, marching on in the story of Moses, we see a fear and a reluctance to do what God has asked him to do. And we see this in Moses. And we can see this in ourselves as we just kind of listen to the story. Moses ends up marrying one of these, one of these seven sisters. And he stays in Midian, and he cares for the flock, these flocks of animals. And during this time, Pharaoh dies, and another one rises up and takes his place. And the people of Israel groan because of their slavery. The people who are slaves begin to cry out to God. And God hears them. And it says that God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham. So one day, Abraham's, or I mean Moses is out leading his flocks, and he goes up to uh, Mount Oreb, this mountain of God. And when he's there, he sees this bush that's on fire, this burning bush. It is clearly burning, but it's just not being consumed at all. And it's the angel of the Lord. And when Moses gets close, God calls to him and says, Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing on is holy ground. And so Moses does, and he hides his face, and he's afraid. And God tells him this. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is full of fear. Moses does not want to go there. Remember, he escaped there. They're trying to kill him there. And he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I that I should bring out the children of Israel? And God says this. So, so Moses is concerned. He's like, I don't want to do this. Who am I going to do this? And so God says this. He says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you. This is the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I always think that this is one of the funniest things in the Bible because you have to put yourself in Moses' place, right? God tells Moses, go to the most powerful nation in the land, to the most powerful king in the land, the one whose predecessor is trying to kill you, and you single-handedly free two million people by yourself, lead them out of Egypt, and bring them into the promised land. So, it's a huge, huge task. Moses says something. God's like, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a sign that you know I'm sending you. So Moses is like, okay, what's the sign? God is like, after everything is done, <laughs> after it's all done, you've already done this, you're going to worship me right here on this mountain. <laughs> I always think, can you give me a different sign? <laughs> can you give me a sign that happens before I go through this, before I lead these two million people out? So it just always, just always struck me as so funny. But Moses does that, and he goes back and forth with God. He has all these excuses that he doesn't want to do it. He says, they're not going to listen to me. Who am I? They're not going to listen to me. He says, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. Every time Moses comes up with his argument not to do it, God gives him a reason to do it. God even gives him this ability to do miracles to do it. And Moses still doesn't want to do it. And finally it says, please God, send someone else. And Scripture says that finally the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And God says, no, you will do this. But God at the same time is a gracious and a kind God. So he says, you know what? I'm not going to send you there alone. Your brother Aaron is going to go with you. You're concerned because you can't speak well. We don't know if he stuttered or if he just didn't feel like he spoke well. Because I can tell you what, Aaron will go with you and Aaron will do the speaking. I'll tell you what to say. You tell Aaron and Aaron will do it. You don't have to go alone. I'm going to send someone with you. But how often are we like Moses, right? How often is it so clear what we should do and yet we have excuses, Right? We're not qualified. They won't listen to me. I can't speak clearly. I don't know enough. Or it's too hard. Or you just don't understand. Right? And these excuses may convince ourselves. And these excuses may even convince the people that are around us. But these excuses do not convince God. God has called us. And we are to obey. So the next thing we want to look at is Moses' shining face. Which to me, when I think of Moses' shining face, I think of his prayers and him talking to God. So this is how it goes. God has promised to deliver his people. 
And through one miraculous way after another, God fulfills His promise. And Moses does lead the people out of Egypt. That's what we're looking at next week. And God provides this pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire at night so that they know where to go. And He brings them up to this mountain. And He gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the covenant. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. And he sees God. He sees God. And he speaks to God. And when he goes down after being on this mountain, his face is shining. He has no idea that his face is shining. And when he gets down, his face is shining so bright that the people are afraid. The people will not go near him at all. There was a thing that was called the tent of the meeting, which God had Moses make. And Moses would go in there, and when Moses was in this tent of the meeting, he would speak to God, and this cloud would come down. And so just backing up one second, when, when he came down from the mountain, his face is shining so much, the people are afraid. When he's done telling him what God has said, he said, this is what God has said. The people agree that it's good. And then he puts this veil over his face because it's shining. But what happened then was just throughout time, he would go to the tent of meeting and he would speak with God. There would be this cloud that would envelop it. And when it came out, his face would be shining. And so he would go in, he would take the veil off, he would talk to God, his face would be shining, and he would put the veil back on. Exodus 33.1 says this, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I love this thought. Just think about this. God speaks to Moses like you would speak to a friend. Of the 800 times that Moses is mentioned, 200 of those times it says, God said to Moses. 200 of the 800 times God said to Moses. And he spoke to him as a man face to face. He spoke to him as a friend. And so we see God initiating many of these conversations, but we see Moses responding to God, and Moses initiating these as well. And many times Moses comes up, and it's a time where he's crying out to God. It's a time when he um, has struggles or fears or strifes. Look at this one. At one time, Moses is completely overwhelmed with caring for the people. They are complaining, and they are everywhere. And Moses just can't escape. And it says this, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. And by that it meant grumbling. Moses heard the people grumbling throughout their clans and everyone at the door of his tent. Have you ever felt like that? It's just like, I can't escape. There's people everywhere. My responsibilities, my burdens, my struggles. I just want to go. I just want to go on vacation and just escape it all. Moses can't escape at all. So he cries out to God. He says, I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, kill me at once so that I may not see my wretchedness. And God listens to Moses. God says, gather 70 of the elders of Israel. And he says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you 
and I'm going to put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not have to bear it alone. Moses says, I can't do this, God. He cries out, God, the burden is too great. I cannot escape. God says, I'm giving you 70 people. I'm putting my spirit in them and they will help you. God listens to our prayers. God listens to Moses. And this is one of those things that we can learn from Moses. Every time he went through difficulty, he went to God. Every time he didn't know what to do, he went to God. We see this over and over and over. And not only during those times, but we see it in the prayer time and all the other things that uh, go on. But in this prayer, he also intercedes. So let's take a moment and look at his interceding for the people of Israel. The pillars of cloud and the pillars of fire move on. And it takes them up to the border of Canaan. This is the land that was promised to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. They are Abraham's descendants. So God tells Moses, take 12 spies, 12 people, one from each of the tribes of Israel, and send them into the land and see what they find. So the spies go to the land. They're in there for 40 days. They look out. They come back, and they're carrying... Um, some of the stuff that's in the land. And they've got these grape vines that are so big it takes two people to carry them. I assume it's on their shoulders, one in the front, one in the back, and they bring it in there. And so they all have this report that they come back and they say the land is unbelievable. It's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Look at the grapes that we brought back as evidence of what it is. But there's also people in this and not only are there people, but these people are huge. These people are giants. We look like grasshoppers next to them. And not only are the people big, but they live in cities that are fortified. These people are out here in the wilderness. Nothing. They were slaves in Egypt. They don't have a single thing. And they're walking up. And there's fortified cities. They were just slaves without weapons, without anything. These are fortified cities. So the 12 people all report the exact same thing. And so two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, let's go and occupy it. They say, do not fear them. God will bring us into this land, and he will give it to us. So they're saying, the land is unbelievable. The people are scary. Let's go do it, because God is going to give this into our land, or into our hand that's going to do it. But the other 10 say, there's no way we can go against these people. These people are way too strong for us. And those ten people talk out the entire nation from going into the land that God has promised them. And the people begin to complain. And listen to what they say. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. And all the people get mad at Moses. And now they're going to kill Moses. They're planning on stoning him. And the glory of God comes down. And it comes down in front of all of these people. And God says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all of the signs that I have done among them. They have done miracle after miracle after miracle miracle to get him to this point, including the Red Sea, where God stops the Red Sea, opens it wide open, and they all walk through it. 
again, that's all part of the covenant thing that we're going to look at next week. But these are some of the things. God has given them food. There's two million people out in the wilderness they don't have any food. God says, I'm going to give you food. And so manna comes down from heaven. They wake up in the morning. So how do you think about logistically, how do you feed two million people, right? How do you, feel, you, know, how do you feed your family for you know, every day? But there's two million people and they have to do it. So God finds this, comes up this way where there's this manna, this uh, sweet bread, kind of honey flavored thing. And every morning it's on the ground. So think of like snow, right? So it's like you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, and there's snow on the ground. So two million people can pick up the snow and eat the snow, right? But it's not snow. It's, it's bread that tastes wonderful. Every single morning it comes. Whether they're here or here or here, it follows them. It's there. They have no water. God, the people are complaining. God tells Moses, take your staff, the staff that I gave you, go to this rock and strike the rock, and water is going to come out. Moses goes there, strikes the water. Two million people have enough water to drink. God's done miracle after miracle after miracle. He's like, how long are they not going to believe in spite of all these miracles that I have done? And he says, I, this is God speaking to Moses, Moses, I will strike them with pestilence. I will disinherit them. And I'm going to make you, Moses, a greater and a mightier nation than they are. God's going to kill them all right there on the spot. And he's going to take Moses. And Moses is going to be the descendant of Abraham who gets the promised land. But Moses intervenes. Moses pleads for the people. Moses reminds God of all the promises that he has done to take him up to this point. And he says, look, all the nations are watching. This is your glory. This isn't us. They're going to see you do all these things. March us out and then kill us in the wilderness. And God relents from killing them. Psalm 106.23 says that God would have destroyed them had not Moses, His chosen chosen one, stood in the breach before God to turn away His wrath from destroying them. But even besides this, right? So God doesn't kill them. But there's this discipline that takes place. And God tells Moses to tell this people, what you have said in my hearing, I will do. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Everyone, 20 years and old and upward, who have grumbled against me, and no one shall come into the land that I swore that I will make you dwell in, except for Caleb and Joshua. Those are the two that gave the good, the good report. He says, but your little ones, the ones that you said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. This is the ultimate case, right? Be careful what you ask for. (laughs) Because this is what they asked for. They said, look, it's like it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness than to go in there. And they were concerned about their children being gone. So God says, okay, you wanted to die in the wilderness? You're going to die in the wilderness. Your children, everyone who's 20 years, or I guess it would be 20 and above would die, so 19 and below, are going to go in. And they're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. And everyone over 20 will die in the wilderness. 
but their children will enter the promised land. And here we have such a clear picture of how Moses is like Jesus because Moses spends the next 40 years continually praying for the people, continually interceding for the people on their behalf before God because the people continue to grumble. They can continue to complain and to disobey and to attack Moses. They continue to question his authority. And Moses continues to intervene for him. For the next 40 years, Moses pleads before God for all the people. Jesus does this for us. He doesn't just stand in the breach once when God says this is the penalty for sin. It's death. But Jesus continues to intercede for us. And so that as we sin and we go before Him, we confess our sin, He continues to forgive our sin. And we see over and over that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And Jesus continues to intercede for us. See we, are sa- see, we are saved, right? We're brought out of this land of slavery. We've seen God's grace. We've seen His kindness. We've seen His love. We've known His joy. But as time passes, we forget. And we begin to complain. And we begin to grumble. And we begin to rebel. And Jesus continues to intercede for us. He continues to forgive our sins after He has already forgiven our sins. Moses intercedes for people his entire life, their entire life, despite the sins and the shortcoming. And Jesus intercedes for our entire life despite our sins and our shortcoming. And so I don't want to make a theological point when I said Jesus not only stood in the breach like Moses did, but continued to. Because we know that when Jesus forgives our sins, He completely forgives our sins. So it's not a theological point, but it's just an understanding that you know what? We're saved and we know it. Jesus has saved us, and yet we still continue to sin. And what we need to know is that Jesus continues to intercede for us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and is just. Right? He forgives our sins, and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So as we go on, we see Moses' meekness. The Bible says that Moses was the most meek person to walk the face of the earth. So, we're going to describe meekness in a minute. But here's an amazing thing about Moses and his heart, right? For 40 years, the people wander in the wilderness without any hope of doing anything else. They know they're going to die in the wilderness. They are on a journey without a destination. They're not going to settle into a new land. They don't do any nesting. They don't build any white picket fences. They just wander. God had told him everybody who's over 20, all the men over 20, will die in the wilderness. There were 603,550 men. This isn't talking about the women. If you just count them, that means that every year 15,089 will die. Every month, 1,257. Every day, 42 men will die. And they're not getting anywhere. There is nothing. There is no promised land. They have rejected it. They are not going there. How do you go on? What purpose is there? But listen to what Moses says in Psalm 90. He says this. He says, we do have this overhead. He says this, uh, Psalm 90. There it is. So, thank you. 
Moses says this, you return man to dust. You say, return, O children of man. You sweep them away as a flood. They're like a dream. We are brought to end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. All of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then listen to what he says. So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and that we may be glad all of our days. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Isn't that amazing? Moses realizes the situation. And he goes to God. He says, teach me to number my days. I want to get this heart of wisdom. Satisfy me with your love. Let me rejoice. Let me be glad. Let me see your glorious power. Let, me, let my children see this. Let your favor be upon us. The work that we do, establish it. Bless it. Let us find joy in it. This attitude is called meekness, right? Here's the definition of meekness. Meekness is the quality of humility and gentleness usually exhibited during suffering or difficulty and accompanied by faith in God. Let me say this again in case you're writing it down. Meekness is the quality of humility and gentleness, comma, usually exhibited during suffering or difficulty, comma, and accompanied by faith in God. So almost 40 years, right, Israel is complaining about Moses and about God, questioning him, attacking him, opposing him. They even do this to his family. Aaron and Miriam themselves, his family themselves, his brother and sister, oppose him because of his wife, this woman that he's chosen to marry. They oppose him as well. The people oppose him. His family opposes him. The circumstances oppose him. But Moses is humble and he's gentle. He understands that. But this meekness, this humbleness and gentleness in understanding this peace that's God's sovereign and God's control is married with faith. He has this faith. So it's a quality of humility and gentleness that's accompanied by faith in God. How else can he possibly do this? How else can you possibly do this for 40 years without faith? What else would keep you from bitterness and anger and hopelessness and despair but this understanding that God is in control and this faith that God is in control and you marry those two things. And it's not only, I mean, it's faith in God, but faith says that, uh, God says that without faith, I'm trying to remember this, it's in Hebrews, it is impossible to please God because we must believe in Him and that He rewards us. So Moses does this. Hebrews 11, 24, 26 says this, by, fo- by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the, re- the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ does when he faces the cross. Hebrews 12, 1 to do, says this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It is this understanding that God is in control. And it is this faith in God and this reward that comes through. This is why Moses is able to do this. This is why Moses, is, in despite of his situation, is able to call out to joy. He's like, or to God, give me joy. Let me rise up in the morning. Give me your joy in the morning. Every day, establish the work that you have given me to do. So the question is, how do you do in this area? When situations are difficult, when people are difficult, when there doesn't seem to be any out, and it seems like you're trapped in this wilderness and there is no destination, how do you do? Do you give up? Do you come despondent? Do you get angry? Do you get even? Or are you humble and gentle, having this faith that God is in control? And going to God like Moses did, and relying on God, looking for your reward. I don't know that we speak enough of our reward, not just us here at King and Grace, but all over. I don't know how often we look at heaven and if we look at it enough. But when we look at this, we see Moses did this because he looked for the reward. We see that Jesus Christ, when, when he was faced with the cross, looked to his reward. When we are in our difficulties, do we look to our reward? And I would just encourage you to do that. Next thing we want to look at is we want to look at his failure. Okay? Time marches on. Years slip away. Moses' sister Miriam dies. They come to a place that's called the wilderness of Zin, and there's no water. And the exact same thing that's happened before happens again. The people get mad. The people start to grumble. The people quarrel against Moses. And they say once again, this is years later, would that we have perished when our brothers perished. Why did you bring us into the wilderness that we die here? Why did you make us come out of Egypt? Right? It's the same old thing that they're complaining about. <laughs> it's like, look, look at our lives here. Right? How much of it is the same old thing? Or the things that we hear from people, the same old thing. But it's the same old thing, right? And it sounds like what happened before. So Moses and Aaron go to God. And God tells him, here's what I want you to do. Uh, Numbers 28. He says, take the staff and assemble the congregation. You and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give, them, give drink to the congregation and the cattle. So Moses gets his staff. Him and Aaron gather all of the people in front of the rock. But listen to what happens. Remember, the instructions are you're supposed to go, you're supposed to speak to the rock, and the rock is going to give you water. Moses goes up. And Moses said to them, the people of Israel, he says, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? 
And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. Water comes out of the rock. But Moses did not do what God told him to do. God says, speak to the rock and water's going to come out. But Moses doesn't. Moses loses his temper and he speaks to the people of Israel. He calls them rebels. He says, and then he says, should we give you the water? Not speaking to it and God is giving the water. But yelling at Israel and saying, should we give you the water? And so Moses takes his staff and he hits the rock instead of speaking it. And then he hits the rock again. And the Lord said to Moses, Numbers 20.12, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. They did not hold God as holy in the eyes of the people. So God will not let them enter the promised land. This is a tragic story. And one that I'm sure we cannot fully comprehend. Because this was Moses' life. This was Moses' charge, was to bring these people into the promised land. But Moses doesn't honor God in front of the people. And he yells at the people. And he doesn't speak to the rock, but he hits the rock. And he hits the rock again. So Moses cannot enter the promised land. In this case, Moses isn't like Jesus. Because Moses fails to obey God. And Moses fails to honor God before the people. But Jesus Christ succeeds. Jesus Christ obeys God. And Jesus Christ honors God in front of all the people at all times. But the story goes on. And we see his perseverance. Because you know what Moses does? Moses keeps on going. Moses keeps doing the work that God has called to do, that God has called for him to do. His brother Aaron dies, and he keeps on going. He keeps doing the work that God has called him to do. There are battles, and there are wars, and he keeps on going. He keeps doing the work that God has called him to do. They are now on the doorstep of Canaan. They are ready to go in and to take the land. But Moses can't go. There needs to be another leader. There needs to be someone else. Moses knows he can't go in, but there needs to be someone else to lead these people in there. So Moses says to God, let the Lord, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all the flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them and bring them into the congregation of the Lord, and, and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep who have no shepherd. Moses, despite all this, his perseverance, he still goes on. He still does what needs to be done. He still looks for the people. These are his people that he's led for 40 years. He's like, God, don't let them be like sheep without a shepherd. Raise someone up for them. And God raises up Joshua. And it is Joshua who's going to bring them into the promised land. But in all this time, we see God's grace. We see God's love 
and we see God's kindness. Because this is one of my favorite parts about this whole story of Moses because we get to see into the heart of God. The time is drawing near when Moses will die. And God says this. This is found in Deuteronomy. He says, Go up to this mountain of Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite of Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession. And die in the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes. But you shall not go there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, meaning God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. The result of what Moses did is that he cannot enter the land. But God in His kindness brings Moses up to the mountain and He shows him the land. This is Moses, the man that would speak to God face to face the man that God described as his friend. And even in the story, God defends Moses in Moses' life. His sister Miriam, his brother Aaron oppose him because of his wife. And God says this in Numbers 12, Hear my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. He saw God. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my service, Moses? This is God's friend. God defends Moses, even in front of Moses' sister and Moses' brother. He's like, look, the other ones, they'll come to a dream. I'll speak in riddles. I'll let him know. But not Moses. He's my friend. I speak to him face to face. How dare you attack him? How can you possibly do this? This is Moses. And so God takes Moses, his friend, and he lets him see what Moses, what he's been working for his whole life. He says, this is the land. And see, Moses has been working his whole life so that he enters the land. But so that the two million strong Nation of God can enter the promised land. And God shows him the promised land. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He says, they will enter. And God himself, with all the tenderness that a friend can give, buries Moses on top of this mountain that's overlooking 
the promised land. And here's the epitaph. It's found in Deuteronomy 34, 10-12. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his servants, to all of his land, for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Can you imagine having that as your epitaph? This is how God saw Moses. This is God's love. This is God's kindness. This is God's compassion. So what thoughts do we want to leave with when we remember Moses' life? We've been comparing Moses to Christ many times. And that's what the book of Romans does. So look at this with me. I mean, I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews does this. Hebrews 3, 1-6. through He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than a house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This final thought as we remember Moses, if we take the nation of Israel as a nation of Israel and not think of it as individual people who fall along the way, but we take the entire nation of Israel, Moses rescues Israel from slavery. Moses intercedes for Israel his whole life. And Moses brings them into the promised land. This is what Jesus Christ does for us. Jesus Christ rescues us from slavery, the slavery of sin and of death. He intercedes for us our entire life. And He brings us into the promised land. He brings us in to heaven. The band can come up as I close in prayer. Father God, we